So I was all prepped and like locked and loaded. I'm gonna, we're going to talk about you know Luke chapter 10, Mary and Martha, you know, and I will, but I almost feel like I just want to set the context for why I'm so stressed out. I got up and I checked Twitter and everyone's freaking out about immigration and people on like hypercritical and moralistic people who agree with my position, which is love everybody. And then there's these other people and, and I'm like, why are we shouting? You know, I remember, so I want to take you back. I remember being in seminary chapel and there was a ministry that came to talk to us about caring for the poor in India. And I'm not going to name the ministry for obvious reasons in a second. But I remember sitting in chapel and hearing all kinds of wonderful scriptures being read to me about God's priority of the poor. And I noticed that the presentation by the... Did I hear somebody say something? I noticed that the presentation was angry. And, and the, the tonality didn't smell like the Jesus that, that loves me. and didn't sound like the wooing of the Spirit of God. It sounded like the convictions of someone who was angry that I had Christmas. And had more than one pair of jeans. And so I'm just reminded this morning afresh that while I want to represent the positions that Jesus cares about as I read in my Bible, I also want to represent them in such a way that the spirit of Jesus is represented. I want to represent them in such a way that the beauty and the attractiveness of Jesus comes through loud and clear. I almost want to read you a whole Facebook argument that I read this morning, and I'm tempt, strongly tempted to. Yeah, so you can get stressed out with me. It'll help me feel better if I have misery loves company. Tammy's like, don't do it. And y'all are like, don't do it. And I'm like, guys, Jesus and his truth is at stake. So a friend of mine just posted a scripture, love your neighbor as yourself. That seems simple enough, right? Anyone? Someone I won't name then replies, Iraqi people aren't your neighbor. Then my friend says, yes, they are. Then the other guy says, so do you go and borrow sugar from Iraqis? Then my friend quotes the entire parable of the Good Samaritan. At length. Huge. And by the way, the point of the parable of the Good Samaritan is not who is my neighbor, but who was a neighbor. Mmm, interesting. Right? Because we're asking the question, who's my neighbor? How can I get out of doing the right thing when it's costly? And Jesus is asking a better question. Who loved like a neighbor? Ah, that's a better question. Anyway, so my friend quotes the whole parable of the Good Samaritan. And then this guy says, so move to Iraq so you can help stricken Iraqis or help those in your vicinity as the Good Samaritan did. You're making my point. And then my friend says, not sure what your point is. Then the other guy says, The neighbors to Israel was the Samaritans. So in context, my point is that we aid those who are around us in our vicinity the way the Lord explains. But that doesn't mean let's help everyone who has a need everywhere. 
That's nonsense. You're vocal about refugees and immigration and wrongly quote Jesus. That's my point. Then my friend says, actually all I said was a scripture and posted it for reflection. And the other guy says, it wasn't for reflection. You're trying to say in the flow of the conversation that we should treat everyone as a neighbor. Iraqi Christians and neighboring nations have a responsibility to carry out Jesus' words. We're not the neighbor to the world. So your do-good, all-embracing, blanket blindness about Muslims and refugees is erroneous. (sighs) Then my friend says, well, I'm going to let Jesus be the judge of that when my life ends. Not you. I'm betting on the Jesus way. And the other guy says, that's a cop-out. You start a conversation, and then when you get cornered, you do the Muslim Allah knows best cop-out. Tut. And then my friend says, I'm not concerned, bro. You're not going to change my mind. Anyone in need is my neighbor. That's my position. Stop trying to change my mind. Believe what you want, bro. I choose to show compassion to as many as I can, regardless of where they live. Okay, says the other guy, but don't pretend that's what Jesus was saying and somehow that you're taking a more Jesus-like stance. It's just error. My friend ends with, thanks for your opinion. Then the other guy came back like nine more times. (sighs) We do weird things with logic when we're trying to escape the fact that we don't agree with Jesus. Don't we? We do weird things with logic when we're trying to escape the obvious fact that our politics is now in contradiction with Jesus' teachings and example. Anyway, where were we? Luke chapter 10. Did I open up a can of worms and then just walk away from it? Is that okay? Can I do that? I get some shaking heads. No, you can't. What I'd like to talk about this morning, actually I wouldn't like to talk at all to be honest with you, but what I feel like I'm supposed to talk about this morning is a, is a simple prayer that I was praying last weekend, all weekend long, and that is, make my heart a Bethany. We know that Jerusalem is a special city to God. We know that Jerusalem is the place where he's covenanted to make his name dwell. We know that Jerusalem is the place where He established a permanent tabernacle, well not permanent anymore, but you know what I mean, for a while, permanent tabernacle for his his name, for his glory, for his presence, that he said he'd honor the prayers, prayed even directed toward that place from elsewhere. And some people are still looking for Jerusalem to have pretty big significance in what God ends up doing in these final days. But sadly, Jerusalem seems to have largely rejected Jesus, when he walked the earth. And another town nearby tended to be the place where he laid his head. It's within walking distance. 
It's within walking distance from the Mount of Olives, one of the favorite places that Jesus taught and hung out with his disciples. It's within walking distance from the Garden of Gethsemane, where he was praying the night that he was betrayed and murdered. And the last week of Jesus' life, when he would daily come into Jerusalem to teach, the place he would retreat to, to sleep, was this little town of Bethany. Bethany is the home of Mary and Martha and Simon. I'm sorry, actually it is Simon too, but Lazarus, Mary and Martha and Simon too. Bethany is the place that, though it's a tiny little town, seems to be where Jesus went for refreshment, for rest, for restoration. It's also the place where where Mary poured an entire year's worth of perfume on his feet in one evening, wasting what? What would you say? $35,000, $45,000, $55,000 worth of perfume on his feet, all in one fell swoop, and was criticized roundly. That money could have been given to the poor, and Jesus defends her. Mary doesn't have many words in the Bible, and Jesus does defend her several times. It's also the place where Lazarus, when he died, Jesus went, took his good time, by the way, to raise him from the dead. And, and some of the conversations that happen in that passage in John 11 are just staggering. Maybe I'll preach on them in a few weeks. I don't know. It's also the town of Martha. Martha, who has more conversation by a long shot with Jesus in the Gospels than either Mary or Lazarus. Lazarus says nothing. His job is to get, is to get sick, die, and then get raised. And then walk out like this. You know, that's his job. Doesn't, doesn't do a lot. It's really interesting to me. It's Lazarus being raised from the dead that is the nail in Jesus' coffin. That once Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, the reputation that God is with him would become too powerful and the religious leaders of the day, I like to say the church of the day, cannot stand this. God's with him, this is too obvious, and then Caiaphas issues the, you know, that, that prophetic statement, it's better for one man to die than for Roman to come and, and kill a bunch of us. So he didn't know he was prophesying, he meant it differently. But my prayer, make my heart a Bethany, because of all the significance of the sweet, intimate things that happen, some of the most moving passages in this in the, in the story of Jesus, for me personally, happened there. All the Gospels record Mary washing Jesus' feet with the perfume and with her tears and wiping them with her hair. They all record that story. I remember when I discovered that story, I was so emotionally overcome that I, I, I never wanted to preach on it and cheapen it. Do you understand? You ever, you ever see something valuable and then when you try to document it with words, you ruin it? Have you ever tried to pray something with words and it was in here, it was big and strong and as soon as you tried to put it into words, it's just, bleh. they just couldn't, you know? That passage for me is like that. It still is like, like that. And there's so much truth in that passage. But another passage is similarly striking. I want to read it to you now. Listen to the word of the Lord. As Jesus and the disciples continued on their way to Jerusalem, they came to a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. 
Her sister Mary sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he taught. But Martha was distracted by the big dinner she was preparing. She came to Jesus and said, Lord, doesn't it seem unfair to you that my sister just sits here while I do all the work? Tell her to come and help me. But the Lord said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset over many things. There is only one thing worth being concerned about. Mary has discovered it, and it will not be taken away from her. This is the culturally controversial word of the Lord. The first time I heard this passage preached was by an African-American woman who rocked the house. I was a young believer, a brand new Christian. I was in the REACH missions program of our denomination, and I figured out when I was at REACH that I preferred black churches to white ones. By a long shot, the preaching just seemed more on fire. The worship there was, was just more upbeat, and there was just something about a lot of the, the big... Uh, affectionate hugs you get at the door and everything and the perfumes and the hats and the enthusiasm. It just, it was just better. Just, I liked it better. I tried the vineyard. It just, Rich Nathan was nice, but white people were just kind of boring. So I ended up going to a church called Rama Christian Fellowship, or Christian Center. And one morning I showed up and a woman was going to preach and that scandalized me. That offended me actually. And I was like, that can't happen. I've read the Bible. Like 1 Timothy 2 says women aren't supposed to teach. They're not supposed to have authority. What is going on up in here? And I noticed her husband was there. And uh, I thought that was weird. He, he got on the keyboard. He started tripping over the sound equipment. No, he got on the keyboard and he played this like jazz rendition of As the Deer, Pants for the Water, So My Soul Longs After You. And he's like adding these strange chords. And I was like, this guy's tight, man. And then, then he says, all right, I got to go preach across town. And, and he says, you know, I'll see you, baby. I'll see you. You have a good one. And she says, preach good, baby. And out the door he goes. He's gone. And I thought, why did he even show up? That's weird, right? Like, if you know you got to be scheduled to be across town, why would you show up the place that your wife's going to preach and sing a song? Do you know what I mean? Why do that? So in my little... My little world, I thought, I think I know why he did that. He did that to show I'm for this. This is A-OK in my book. She's got the word of the Lord. She's called. She's anointed. She's appointed. She's trained. She's do- she should be doing this. I said, OK. And so in my little conservative world where I was like, women can't do that, it checked a little box called, she's got a good relationship with her husband and he's for it. That checked. You don't understand what I'm talking about? Is anybody with me today? That checked a little box in my head. Okay, all right. Then the preacher got up. And he introduced her and talked about how she's got the word of the Lord and he's asked her to come and everything. And I thought, okay. That checked another little box in my little conservative brain that said women can't do that stuff. Her husband's cool with it. It's not like she's undermining that. Check. Her pastor's not only cool with it, he's the reason she's here. That checked another. She's not undermining male authority. Okay, she, that checked another little conservative box in my head. Check. And that enabled me to leave the door of my heart open enough. Don't judge. I was real conservative. I'm still fairly conservative theologically, by the way, in case anyone wondered. The reason I'm 
liberal politically on some issues. Some. Is because I'm theologically conservative, y'all. All right? If you take the Bible seriously, you're going to end up on both sides of the issues politically on stuff. And she preached on this passage. And, and she changed my life. Probably the best sermon I ever heard, which is not what you're going to get today. You're just going to get what I think about this passage. And she told us that Martha, Martha is so busy serving Jesus, Martha is so busy stressing herself out to make sure that the 15 people that are going to be at her dinner party or whatever it is, 12 disciples plus Jesus plus a few others, however many, could be 12, 13, 15, 20, doesn't matter. But if I had to host that many people at my house, I would be stressed out. I get stressed out when like three people come over if their houses are immaculate. If they're like me or they're just like Carl Chupp where his house is clean but he's laid back, then I'm fine. But all I'm saying is I relate to the anxious Martha. I furiously yell commands for so-and-so to bleach the toilet and get the scrubbed and pick that up and take those over there and don't just sit there clean something because we got people coming. You know what? I know I'm not alone. I remember my mom, she was like, Grandma would be like, we have 15 minutes, everybody clean as fast as you can. And that stressed my mom out so bad, she decided she would just keep her house permanently clean and never have to go into panic mode. So I grew up like, where are my shoes? Well, you don't have them anymore because they're in the basket of things that have been taken. (laughs) But I need my shoes. Well, then you should have picked them up. (laughs) Consequences. So I relate to Martha's stress, but Martha is stressed. She's worried. She wants to be the perfect host. She wants the meal to be amazing. She's trying to create an environment that's conducive to Jesus himself when he comes having a good time. And she's, it's totally understandable. She's busy. She's working hard. She's in the kitchen. Mary is helping her. And everyone knows when Martha's working, get out of her way and just take orders because she's bossy. But she gets stuff done and we appreciate it. She's very generous. She's very helpful. She's the kind of person who makes food for people after they have a baby. We appreciate her. We like her. She's generous. She's hardworking. She's diligent. And she never lets up. Of course, the alternative is also true about Martha. She's stressed out, worried, and upset at other people for not being as busy and active and helping her. So at one point during the meal, Mary disappears. Mary goes AWOL. And she does something. I want to teach you all a little bit here. In the homes at that time, the, we have this thing called the living room. Used to be called the parlor. It was the place where guests would be entertained. And then they would not go past the invisible wall into the living quarters, the bedroom or the kitchen. They would stay in the parlor or the living room. Okay? In, the, in the Palestine at this time, you have the, 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 the dinner guest room, but then you have the kitchen or the courtyard, and the women, I know, stayed in the kitchen and the courtyard, and the men sat in the parlor. Mary disappears from the kitchen and goes to the place she cannot go to. And then she sits at Jesus' feet as though she's allowed to be a disciple. Y'all understand, rabbis didn't have female disciples. It didn't happen. 
The sayings of the time were, do not speak much to a Gentile or a woman. And the prayer in many synagogues today is, Lord, I thank you I wasn't born a Gentile or a woman. Today in the synagogue. Mary hears Jesus teaching. And like many of us, when we hear Jesus speaking, we become enticed. And we draw closer. She sits at his feet and listens to what he is saying because his words are spirit and life. And she is now feasting, no longer preparing the bread for everybody's body, but now she's feasting on his word in his presence and she's coming alive. So Martha, you start to hear the banging of the pots and the pans just a little louder than before. And Lazarus is like... My intuition, my spidey senses are telling me Martha's ticked. And then about five seconds later, his spidey senses confirmed. He goes, I knew it. And out she comes. And to everyone's embarrassment, she attacks Jesus. Attacks Jesus. Jesus? You're the authority. And you're tolerating this. I'm up in here slaving away. Mary's out here with the men acting like she's somebody. Tell her to help me. Don't you care that my sister's left me to do all the work? Guys, when we serve the Lord according to our own understanding, doing what we think we should be doing for him, and making ourselves very busy doing a lot of things we think we should be doing for him, there isn't oil on it. And we will get ticked at the other people not helping us quickly. And Jesus defends her and says, you're worried and upset about, say it with me, many things, but only one thing. Your head's filled with all these priorities that you're trying to keep. Your head's filled with all these plates you're trying to keep spinning. Remember how I said the other week, Jesus is not meant to be a priority or even the top priority. He's meant to be our one thing. This is what I'm referring to. So when Jesus says, Mary's chosen the better part, and I'm not taking it away from her, it is a rebuke. To Martha, I'll bet you she was ticked for three days at Jesus. And by the way, that's a mark of emotional maturity, to allow someone to be mad at you without trying to fix it. Oh, that came out wrong, didn't it? When we please those who Jesus offends, that can't be good. And when we offend those whom Jesus pleases, that can't be good. Jesus is really good at letting the rich man leave sad. He doesn't run after him, try to apologize for hurting his feelings. Some of us are so addicted to things feeling good in relationship that truth goes out the window because all that matters is our relationship. And what we mean by that is we want everyone to feel good about us. We want to feel good about them. And we're willing to look for quick solutions to achieve that. And Jesus just delivers the mail to Mary and lets her stew in that discomfort. I suspect that because he did that, she changed. Now, are you saying, 
Okay, this passage is interesting to me because some people hear this and they instinctively become defensive. Right? Like, they, like this would be the passage that the people who are like, all I want to do is just sing songs in the sanctuary for hours every day. Mary's my hero, right? That's not helpful, actually. And then the other people are like, I'm banging, you know, I'm banging on doors telling people about Jesus or I'm serving in the food pantry or doing whatever. Like it's all about serving. It's all about action. It's all about doing the will of Jesus. Those people are like, Martha's my hero. We need a balance of the Mary and the Martha. Lord, deliver us from such terrible things as balance. It's possible for Mary to be at Jesus' feet while preparing meal. And it's it's impossible to be like Mary and end up not serving. Impossible. It's impossible to give your full attention to Jesus and his words and to give your full attention to the person of Jesus and not end up having that attention lead to the fruit of service and work. Impossible. So the issue is not, are we going to prioritize service or worship? No, that's not the issue. The issue is that the one thing that's necessary that Mary discovered is sitting at face-to-face relationship with Jesus, listening to him in direct relationship. A few weeks ago, Amber tells me something about secondhand. How did you describe it? You, you, you were wary in your life of the tendency to do the easier thing, which is secondhand intimacy. Read a bunch of things other people who are intimate with Jesus said without actually steadying your heart and saying, you're here now, I'm relating to you now, I'm presenting myself to you here and now, speak, Lord, I'm listening. Or I adore you, Lord, this is what's going on with me. It's just so easy to be about Jesus instead of with Right? And you, we, I'm guilty, guys. Like, I'm, I'm spending quite a lot of good, good amount of time repenting lately. There's stuff in me that, I don't, that I'm starting to see that I'm like, I wish that was out of my life. Here's one. I care what you think way too much. I want to love you. How can I love you well if I care what you think? Because if I care what you think, I'll shield my heart from you. How can I love you if I'm shielding my heart from you? How can I love you if I care if you like my sermon? How can I preach the whole counsel of God to you if I'm afraid you're going to stop coming to the church if I disagree with you? Do you understand what I'm saying? Like, the face-to-face thing with Jesus, pleasing Jesus has to become priority number one. To please Jesus means to annoy and frustrate and offend people. To please Jesus and to follow Jesus guarantees that we will face persecution in this life and probably misunderstanding from his own people. Listen, he came to his own and his own received him not. He was born in his hometown, misunderstood. The political ruler tried to kill him. They had to escape to Egypt. He came back. No one noticed he was the Messiah. When he started preaching, they said, who do you think you are? And then even in the places where, they had mir- where he had miracles, when he said, no, hold on. It's not about this political kingdom coming to bless you and protect you and, and support your politics. It's about you, you manifesting the kingdom that looks like me, loving my enemies, laying down my life, rising from the dead, not escaping death, rising from death. So follow me and get crucified too. And they said, I'd rather not. Sometimes I think Judas Iscariot, the last name Iscariot is not really a last name, like it, it could be the Greek Sicari, 
which is, means dagger man. It was a political group of zealots that said, we want the kingdom to come politically by force to kick the Roman bums out and let's do this thing. Sometimes I think Judas might have been trying to provoke Jesus to take action, not actually kill him. Like if I force his hand, because I know he's Lord, if I force his hand, maybe he'll finally bear his fierce arm and do this thing. Judah, the whole Judas story just makes me so sad. Israel was t- saying to me yesterday that like, you know, at least he repented. And I said, no, I wish he had repented. He regretted what he had done. It's not the same as repenting. He could have repented, but he regretted what he had done and hated himself and then killed himself. The whole story is just really sad. I mean, Peter screwed up royally too. He didn't betray, but he certainly abandoned and denied. You could say he betrayed, maybe he did. I would probably say it, maybe I'm being mean to him. But the difference between Peter and Judas is the difference between repentance and regret. I mean, Peter goes on to like found the church. Because guess what? Jesus rises from the grave and he's not like, who did it? I'll kill you now. He's in the same posture of love as when they murdered him. Anyway, but he was rejected. And he says, if they treated me this way and you're following me with integrity, they're going to treat you this way. And, and this is so frustrating reading your Gospels is that the people, not just, it's not surprising that Jesus was rejected by the world. That's not surprising. It's surprising he was rejected by the, faith, the people of the faith. I would call it, the, in our context, the, the equivalency is the church. But as soon as I say that, people go, not the true church. And I go, I know that, not the true church. The true church is not the people who attend the building on Sunday and, and read the Bible with discipline. The true church are the people who actually believe the scriptures, are born again, encounter the person of God, and have the genuine faith of Abraham, not just the form of Abraham. They have the circumcision of the heart, not just the circumcision of the flesh. I know all that, and I could say all that, but then what, by the time I'm finished with my little explanation, nobody feels like maybe they're the one who's guilty anymore. You know what I mean? We've got to leave a wide swath to be able to repent. Back to the text. So Martha and Mary are, all, are like an incredibly, incredibly, it's a beautiful passage to me. It's emotional to me. Why? Why is it emotional to me? She is taking a brave brave, bold steps saying, I want you, Jesus, I don't care who's watching, which she does in another place, even more intensely. And Jesus says, this is what it's all about. This is the one thing. Now, this thing about one thing, what is Jesus quoting? Does anybody know, just like off the top of your head, what, he, what passage from the Old Testament Jesus might be referencing? Don't you like those pop quizzes where the teacher's like, think, what am I thinking of right now? You know, I'm like, chill out there. No one can read your mind. One thing I ask of the Lord, this I will seek, to live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, Delighting in the Lord's perfections and meditating in his temple. David prays this in Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing I ask, 
I remember Mike Bickle telling the story of doing the all-day prayer thing where they, before they had the music, Mike Bickle runs a ministry that they do 24-7 prayer and worship. And before they learned how to do it in a way that was sustainable, they did it without any music. It was just a microphone, and people would get in a long line, and 24-7 they would come up and just pray into the mic. And he was doing his part, and then he was sitting there, and a prophet came up to him and says, the Lord says yes. And he goes, to what? And he goes, to what you prayed. And he's trying to think of what he prayed into the microphone that day. And he goes, you mean this? And he goes, no, not that stuff. Not what you prayed in the mic. The prayer you really prayed. And he goes, what? And he goes, you know, Psalm 27.4. One thing I ask. That's how you know it's a prophet, by the way. When they heard what you prayed, quietly, not into a microphone by yourself, sitting in a pew. And they were in their garden at home. That's a prophet, my friend. The Lord says, yes. What? You mean to what I prayed in the mic? No, not that. Give me a break. That was just the stuff you're supposed to pray. The one that came from here, the prayer. One thing. One thing. All I want to do is know you. All I want to do. This is Paul in Philippians. He goes, listen, I used to be super religious, super effective. I was born as a Jew. I was a tribe of Benjamin. I was a, I was a Pharisee, talking about zeal. I was a Pharisee persecuting the church according to the law, faultless. All the stuff, all, it used to be me doing all this for God. I was busily doing all this stuff for God. And he says, but now I consider everything I, I was doing for God, I considered all a loss, all, this, all these many things, all of it, rubbish, We won't go into that word, but y'all can do your own research later at home. Rubbish. And all I want is this one thing. One thing that's so great, so surpassingly great. It's knowing Christ. Knowing Christ, fellowshipping with him, sharing in his sufferings, sharing in his resurrection. All I want is to know him. One thing. The one thing has replaced the many things. The many things he was doing for God made him a terrible person. The one thing, one thing rooted him in sustainable love so he didn't burn out and didn't turn to hate, didn't resent those who didn't join him. Actually, Paul might have as a human struggle with those things, but Jesus certainly didn't. I'm just finding that I want to be more deeply rooted in this one thing. I want to be more of a, a Mary so that my service is sustainable and not resentful of others, so that my service is what Jesus actually said to do and what Jesus, more importantly, is saying to me now. Not what I think. I used to live what I think and what I want and what I believe. That didn't go so well. I don't want to replace me in the flesh living for me with me in the flesh living for God. (laughs) It's not going to get great results and it's going to misrepresent him to the whole world and to you and to my own family. So back to Rhema Christian Fellowship. This African-American lady, she said, has Jesus done anything for you? And I'm like, yes, he saved my life. And he goes, why don't you tell somebody? You know? And I'm like, oh, he saved my soul. And he says, get up somebody and testify. And so we're like all on our feet shouting. And she says, why do you care what somebody thinks? You got to have hunger. Jesus has done something. Don't you know who he is? Have you forgotten your story? Don't you know where he found you? Somebody testify. Somebody up in here. Come on now. And like, we're all on our feet and I'm worshiping. And I'm like, oh, the worship's not over when the singing is over. Oh, okay. I can't do half justice. But when it was done, 
I saw this passage permanently different, and I'm not doing it half justice, but I saw this passage permanently different, and I also had changed my view of whether a woman should preach, by the way. It messed me up a little bit. I thought, okay, if she ain't allowed to do it, why is she better than any man I ever heard? And her husband's cool with it, and her pastor's cool with it. That's interesting. Maybe I'm missing something. Maybe I'm misinterpreting 1 Timothy 2. Maybe I'm missing something. First paper I wrote when I got to college, by the way. What do I do with this passage that when you, all you got to do is read it in public and, and some women want to show a shoe at you and I didn't even write it. I didn't do it. I was, just, I was reading it. I, ow! You know? Ow! Something to think about. Anyway. Let's get up and pray. Can you understand my prayer now when I say, make my heart a Bethlehem? I'm sorry, a a Bethany? Bethlehem's cool too, but that's Christmas. Do you understand my prayer? Make my heart a Bethany? Lord, I don't want to be like Jerusalem that has all the form of religion and hates the presence of Jesus when he actually shows up. I want to be a Bethany that's so hungry for you, I'll, I'll just, I don't even care about social standards and what other people think of me, but I'm coming after you. I want to hear your voice. I want to walk with you. I want to be one that refreshes your heart, Lord. I want to be one you count as a friend. Lazarus, your friend, has died. You hear that? I want to be, I want to be the home he retreats to after a long, hard day of ministry. I want to be the one that's more concerned about what he's saying than what I'm thinking. I want to be the one that's attending to his presence and voice. And I want to be actively doing his will. I want to serve him in sustainable ways. I want to make a difference. I was created in Christ Jesus for good works. I'm not here to be lazy. I'm not here to sit around and and pray all day doing nothing. I'm here to dwell with Jesus and what he's doing I'm doing. But my goodness, I want it to be him doing it through me because I know me serving him is as dead as me rejecting him. I want him living in and through me. Galatians 2.20. Are you with me? Father, we invite you. We invite you deeper. And I say, make, make our hearts a Bethany. We want, a, we want to be a place where after a long, hard day of people misunderstanding you, there are people who are willing to open their hearts to you, to learn of your voice, and to have you contradict what I think, what I feel, and what I want. Holy Spirit, we invite you to flow through us. God, I invite you to to reveal to me more ways where I have second-hand intimacy, but you aren't satisfied. You want me more. And I want to be more deeply rooted in you, God, for your own sake, because I bear your name. I have to bear your image if I bear your name, and I can't do it without you doing it through me. So Holy Spirit, do it, please. I ask for your forgiveness, God, for how easily mad I get at people who inconvenience me, and I say, Holy Spirit, change that about me. Father, change that about me. I'm asking God for, for the ability to, to hear past opinion past culture, past tradition, past preference, to your voice. Your voice, God. You have an opinion. You're not silent, you're not absent, and you care.
The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Bless you guys. You're dismissed. Hey, love each other.